Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. Today we get the privilege to hear Gabe Lyons with Q Ideas as he talks to us about Generation Z and spiritual formation. Enjoy Gabe as he presents at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. I love that we're focused on this generation. I love that we're thinking about what does it mean to not just be consumers, but to also be creators. I want to start by reading a little story that I just saw in the news uh, yesterday, two days ago. That I think just can kind of shape a little bit of what we're seeing in a new generation. And, and I want to frame it by saying this idea of, of kind of being a victim, okay, can kind of be something that our world is teaching a younger generation in terms of their worldview. But listen, this is a fun story that I think just illustrates. This is in Berkeley, California. Here's a post that a marathon runner who was training posted. What's up, neighborhood? As a vegan runner, it's always hard for me this time of year when the weather starts warming up and folks start opening their windows. Several nights a week, I'm out running around dinner time, and when people have their windows open, I can smell what they're cooking. I've noticed a sharp uptick recently in smells of folks cooking meat, and it can be quite overpowering. Quite honestly, the odor is offensive, and I'm hoping our community can have some empathy for its plant-based neighbors by closing their windows if they're cooking meat and only putting vegetables on their barbecue. I don't want to be a stereotype, so I won't go into detail on why the odor of cooking animals is offensive, but I encourage you to do your research and join the movement of people who are fighting back. So that's serious. That's a, that's a serious post. In fact, in, in the article, it just sort of showed some of the people that were responding. One of them said, hey, why don't you stop running because runners smell, and I don't like that smell, right? So, you know, when you're in a culture where everybody's got a complaint against somebody else, everybody needs to identify with a certain tribe, everybody feels empowered to confront anybody who's different than them and thinks differently than them and feels like they're owed something, you start to get to this point of ridiculousness, okay? And that's the culture that our kids are growing up in. I have three teenagers and I have one child in kindergarten, okay? So I understand the world you're in. I understand what it's like to try to engage some of these difficult conversations with our students. Um, and it, it can be funny sometimes, but sometimes it can be sad. You don't know whether to laugh or cry because you realize that they're growing up and the air that they're breathing, the culture that they're in, in some ways is feeding them a narrative that isn't true. It's not true for their resiliency. It's not true for how they're going to actually be able to be contributors and not just consumers. And this is actually the ultimate end of a consumeristic view is you really think you're the end. You really think yourself is, is the God and you're the one to be protected and regarded the most. You stop to think about your neighbor and have concern for your neighbor. And unfortunately, I think that's more a, a picture of where we're headed as a society. I will say too, uh, I love Christian schooling. So I grew up and my parents who made very little money, I think my 
parents, uh, my mother didn't work. My father worked as a welder for 30 years after getting back from the Vietnam War in a factory. Uh, they didn't have a lot of money, but one of their biggest priorities was for my brother and I to be able to go to a Christian school. And so I went to a school called Lynchburg Christian Academy in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, kindergarten all the way through, and I'll tell you, as I've grown away from that, I've just come back and so appreciated that my parents prioritized that. Because they understood something even then. I mean, this was 1980, I think, I started kindergarten. But they understood even then that it was going to be important in my childhood to root me and to ground me in the best understanding of God's love for me and his love for the world. And by creating a community around us, between our church, our, our Christian community at the school, my social life, it was certainly very much a bubble. But it was a bubble that was actually necessary for those years, so that as I graduated out of that bubble, as I started to move into the world, as I tried to pursue my calling, I could do it with confidence, and I could do it with conviction, and I could do it with courage, because there was a rooting and a foundation there. I know that many of you who are parents and those parents whose students are under your care, they're counting on us, right? They're counting on us to be creating that. And we both know that without the parents, this doesn't work, that the school can't be the place that we're going to shape all these children as James Smith was just stating that we're going to be able to shape their imagination perfectly. We have a lot of hours with them in our schools, but we don't have all that time. And, and if we're not partnering with parents, sometimes this doesn't work. And so it takes all of us. But I hope over the next few minutes that we can think well together about some of the dilemmas we have currently in this moment, 2020, that our students are dealing with. I want to name some of those. But I also want to be very hopeful about what is our opportunity right now. Because, you know, anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, it can, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity to see something new birth. And that's what I think God sees when he sees this next generation. I think we already see in some of the data and research that the pendulum swinging back to where this generation is going to challenge some ideas. They're going to question some things that maybe their parents haven't questioned too well. And they're going to actually start to push into, is this the good life? What is true? How do I know what's good and evil? And we're going to start to see more questions like that arise. And you're going to have the unique opportunity to help them think through that and to answer that. I want to just start with just some statistics on being distracted because I see the distraction epidemic as probably one of the greatest harms that we all are dealing with. And this isn't just our students, this is each of us. So as I run through these statistics, you know, think about how this is uh, affecting you. So look at this, 64%, this is the percentage of car accidents caused by distracted driving, almost two out of three. Um, the next one, average student can focus on a given task for two minutes. You guys aware of that? Yeah, you know that. Two minutes. The number of daily phone checks, okay, for this age group, for the older age group, 50 times a day you're checking your phone. That was about a year old. I think it's probably 100 now. Uh, let's just keep going through these. Check their phone first thing in the morning, 89%. The first thing they do is grab that phone in the morning. And I know many of you, it's the same thing. Nine hours is how many hours an 8 to 18-year-old is spending on social media per day. Okay, nine hours. You're like, how is that happening? Because they're not allowed to do that in my classroom, right? Well, guess what? They're finding ways to do it, and after class, that's where they're at. That's where they live. So 40 seconds, this is the typical internet user's online screen focus. It, it, it lasts 40 seconds when they're online. They, then they're flipping to something else, they're looking at something else. And it takes 25 minutes for a distracted brain to refocus, okay? So, so quickly distracted. So if any of you right now are on your phone and you're distracted, it might not get you back till the end of this talk, okay? That's what you're doing. That's how your brain's functioning and how it's, how it's wired. 
You know, we're each touching our phones 2,617 times a day. There's no question we're distracted, okay? These things didn't exist 15 years ago. But now it's all part of the new element, the new environment that we're competing in. And I would say we find ourselves now in a predictable predicament. So this isn't just new. It wasn't that others hadn't, hadn't looked ahead and said, hey, this could become a problem. There were some that came before us and predicted this. So when you sit in the middle of the chaos and you think, where did this come from? How are we going to get out of it? I think it's helpful sometimes to go back and to better understand how we got here. So I want to run through a couple of my favorite authors. This is Neil Postman. He says this, when a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, keep going, when in short a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. This was Neil Postman in 1984. He wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And, and in that book, he essentially is painting a picture of the future where he's looking back to when cable TV came on the scene and he's going, look, in the 1960s when cable TV showed up, this started to rewire our brains. It's changing the way we think. It actually is forming us into consumers. It's making us just sit on our couches and become dumb. And all we want to do is entertain ourselves and therefore we're, we're not thinking anymore. And one of the things that Postman does is he looks back even further, behind 1984, he, he literally looks back to the book 1984 by George Orwell, a classic I know many of you have read. And he also looks at A Brave New World by Audius Huxley. And in these two classics, if you go back, I mean, 70, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, when these were written, they were forecasting these futures that anytime people read this uh, dystopian literature, they look into the future and go, wow, that sounds crazy. What, what are they talking about? But what I love is how Postman highlights this. I want to highlight it for you. The different visions that you see between Orwell and Huxley who were trying to predict, and let's just say they were predicting forward, not just in 1984, but predicting into 2020, and look at the contrast of what they were seeing. See, Orwell in 1984, he feared those who would ban books, and just outright ban them. But Huxley feared there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. That's interesting. Next. Orwell warned we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. Huxley believed people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. To, uh, to adore them, right? Doesn't that sound familiar? Feel familiar? Orwell, 1984, he feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture with an infinite appetite for distractions. Okay? Here he is predicting this so many decades ago. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. We wouldn't get to see it. But Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Now, which do you think had the more accurate vision? How many of you think Huxley? Raise your hand. How many of you think Orwell? How many of you think both? Okay, right? I mean, you start to, you know, you might have looked five years ago and said, Man, I think Huxley's right. We're just distracted to death. And now you start to see authoritarianism. You start to see what's happening in China. You start to see what's happening in the East. And you go, wait, I can also see this Orwellian vision playing out where there's total authority, control, digital mapping. You look at this coronavirus and what's taking place through technology to track people, to watch that. And you start to see how 
authoritarian regime actually has a quite a control over their people, right? Next. So, one of the things that concerns me is this statistic that two-thirds of our millennials, so that's the group we can track, you know, that's now 23, 38, are leaving the church in adulthood. Okay, this is a Barna data point. So two-thirds have come through our schools, like I did, come through our churches, our youth groups, and then when it comes time to go to college and actually make their own decision and go, man, does this faith work for me? Is this faith the, the, the faith that's going to lead me in my life, in my choices, in my habits, in my liturgies, in my rhythms? They're opting out. They're saying, I don't, I don't know that I want to stay a part of this. I'm not sure that this really cultivated in me a vision for my future that was going to allow me to stick with this. And that can be a challenge. You see, one of the ideas that, just, just hold a second. One of the ideas that I want to um, spend a moment on is this idea that, that we're so distracted that we can't see the truth, right? We have so much going on, and our kids have so much interfacing with them, uh, engaging them, so much information and content. I mean, when you look at Instagram, for example, the average person on Instagram, Instagram account holders, this is many of you, spends 27 minutes a day reading Instagram posts. They spend 11 minutes reading all other sources, all other news, books. So where are they getting truth from? They're getting it from the opinions of their friends. They're getting it from news. They're getting it from all these sources that are just showing up in their social media feed. That's where they're starting to understand what's real, what's true, what should I believe, how should I think, right? And as, as Christians, we understand that the truth is found in God's word. It's the authority of scripture that actually enlightens us, that allows us to see what's really happening in the world. And if we're not spending time getting acquainted or reacquainted with God's Word, we can start to lose touch with what's true, with what's real. You know, we can, we can actually become persuaded. We can get moved off of the course of seeking truth and pursuing truth and start to move into a different direction that we didn't even realize we were susceptible to. You know, Francis Schaeffer, somebody that I'm sure some of you have read, uh, I went back and read his work from 1968 called The God Who Is There, and I was just fascinated with how much relevance was held in this book, written in 1968 by Francis Schaeffer, who lived in Europe, and many of you know his story, founding Labrie, tried to create a space for Christian apologetics to move forward, but in the arts, in the entertainment space, uh, amongst those who were very intellectual, who had big questions about, is there really a God? And so his book, The God Who Is There, he starts to talk about this idea of truth, and he broke it down so simply, and I just wanted to remind us of his definition of how we can understand truth and also understand how to teach it. You see, what he says about truth is we have to understand this alternative word called antithesis. The word antithesis, and it simply means this, that if one thing is true, the opposite has to be false. Okay, this is just basic logic, right? If something is true, the opposite is false. But in the culture we're in today, that is not what truth is. Truth is whatever you think and feel and whatever you know and your knowledge and your truth, right? We hear that term all the time. You've probably heard from a student. Well, that might be your truth, but that's not my truth. Okay, now, now we know, right? That's not true. Okay, there can't be your truth, my truth, their truth, the person I disagrees with truth. Okay, there is one truth. It's objective, it's unmovable, and we can seek to know it. But if you don't understand antithesis, you can actually be caught off guard, and our students are being caught off guard because they're being told, no, to be nice to somebody else, 
you have to actually affirm that what they're saying is true as well. And that's just not possible, is it? So I think about, and, and by the way, we'll get into some of these cultural issues. That's part of the work that we do through Q. Uh, we create lots of content and conversations and talks because we want to help Christians be informed and smart about the current issues that are happening in our world. And we believe that we should be the most informed and educated. And we should be able to talk about these things. Because in God's good world, there is kind of no topic off limits. And so let's not fear those topics. Let's embrace them. But I think about a couple of the really difficult ones that I know a lot of our youth are struggling with. Many churches are trying to work their way through. But let's apply this idea of truth and antithesis to it. In the subject of gender. Okay? Not supposed to talk about that anymore, right? But, but just the basic subject of gender. The idea of truth, right? That a, a boy's biology makes that person a, a boy or a man, right? Is, is just something that's true. Right? But now in this culture, we're told, actually, your biology doesn't determine whether you're a man. Okay? We, we throw out biology, and it's whatever I feel like I am. That's what makes me this particular gender. Okay? So that just can't be true. I realize it's all the buzz. I realize it's all the talk. I realize all the articles are telling us everything about it. I think we should be super informed about gender dysphoria. I'm not minimizing that. We'll have talks at our Q conference every year helping educate Christians to understand how to think about this well, how to have sensitivity to those who are experiencing it. I do believe the feelings are real. What I'm here to say to you is it can't both be true, right? One of those things is true. Same thing in sexuality. If God's design for sexuality is for sex to be between a man and a woman inside of a covenant marriage, and then everything else outside of it, whether we're single or, or um, have same-sex attraction, but we're called to be celibate, right? If that's a biblical... Uh, sexual ethic and that's true then that means everything happening outside of that can't be true therefore it can't be good for the human soul now I know this is sensitive topics I'm just jumping into it because you guys are smart you're dealing with these things you're having to think about these things I know you're having to talk and think through how do we be sensitive and loving and kind to those who maybe have a different worldview than we do but then how do we equip our students and our teenagers to operate in a world that's functionally telling them so many things are not true that actually are true? And persuading them towards believing and defending and affirming things that are falsehoods. We know scripturally that's what leads us to destruction. And so I start with that because I just want to set the tone and say, look, if we don't understand in this distracted world how to help our students start to see truth, we don't know how to teach it. If we start to back off from that because of sensitivity or because in our own life it's hard for us to be educated or informed on all these current issues, right? I mean, that's one of the complications. We know that, that many pastors today, 50% of pastors in fact, have stated that they're, they're, they're uncomfortable addressing some of these difficult issues in their congregations because they're, you know, and, and I, at, at, the, at the most compassionate level, I understand some of what they're saying. Like, I don't know enough about it. I don't want to offend people. I don't want to say something wrong. I don't want to talk about something that I don't feel like I'm well read on. We could go down the list of probably 10 issues that we're probably going to have a hard time being the experts on, right? We're going to have a hard time being perfectly astute on the new language, the new words. How do I say it this year? What's changed in sort of the, the, the language of the day? And so that becomes challenging. But the downside is that means a lot of our pastors aren't speaking to some of these very important issues. And yet we hear from congregants that they're longing for their church and their leaders to speak to these topics and to help them know how to engage them. And so what's happening is we're missing one another. 
And so the Christian school becomes this place where you have so much time with these students to cultivate, as James K. Smith said, their imagination for a future. But it also has to be girded with truth. It has to be girded with something that will actually outlast this cultural moment and will stand the test of time and will be able to be passed down to, to their generation. You see, this idea of emotivism is, is what the term is called that's driving a lot of how this generation and, and many of our generations think about truth. It's the idea that you know right and wrong based on what feels right instead of reason. It's the idea that feelings should be the driver to whether something's true. And that's why we have a lot of energy put into things that we're being sensitive to. But sometimes our kids get confused with the idea of being kind and sensitive to meaning that other worldview is absolutely true. And that's where they can get tripped up. You see, Tim Keller most recently gave a lecture. He has a new book coming out that's going to talk about this. I thought he defined it really well. What he said was, is we're living in the first time in human history. Okay, the first time in human history where in the past, the way civilizations and humanity understood truth is they believed truth existed out here. Okay? It, it was out here. It, it wasn't in here. It was out there. And my pursuit in life, whether it was through any religion, or the way I was going to live my life was I was trying to always better understand what is true that exists out there. And how do I align my life in such a way that I'm, I'm living towards that? Because I believe that is true. And what he says is this is the first time in human history where now individuals say, no, the truth is in here. And now I'm going to ask all of you to adjust your life to align with what I believe is true in here. Okay, so this is the first time in human history we're all walking around thinking that the truth's in here, and everybody else needs to conform to it. And you wonder why we have all the conflict we have. You wonder why there's such polarization, why people are attacking one another, because they truly believe that, that what they believe to be true is the truth, and they're not open as they once were, that there's truth that exists out here that's objective, that we understand as Christians is God's truth. And as James was saying, and once we understand God's truth, and the better we get to know it, we start to realize that it gives us hope, it gives us life, it gives us meaning, it gives us purpose, it helps us truly become human. It, it helps us live into everything that God's designed for us. Yeah, my concern today is if we don't help our students see this, if we don't help our children understand the attack of the enemy, then in some ways we start to lose them. So as I continue here, um, I think one of the most important areas that we have an opportunity to help our students is engaging with current issues. Now, for some of you, depending on what your background is, your, your um, pedigree, what you teach, or, or what control you have in your school, there's certain environments where this is going to be better than others to address. But we have seen with young people, when we start with the issues that they're faced with, and we work backwards into helping them understand the worldview and how God sees this thing, we have great success. We start to see students come alive and start to gain confidence that they can trust Scripture. Um, I think, as, as uh, this stat says from David Kinnaman in Faith for Exiles and Mark Matlock, who you'll hear from in a little bit, 36% of young adults felt they cannot ask life's most pressing questions in church. So as a result, 23% said they had significant intellectual doubts about Christian teachings. Isn't that sad that almost a third of our Young adults felt they couldn't ask life's most pressing questions. We have to create space for them to ask this question. In addition, this was something Francis Schaeffer said in 1968. He said, it is unreasonable to expect people of the next generation. I mean, think about this. This is 1968. It's unreasonable to expect people of the next generation in any age 
to continue in the historic Christian position unless they're helped to see where arguments and connotations directed against Christianity and against them as Christians by their generation are fallacious. He also goes on to say we must prepare Christian young people by teaching them what the particular attack in our generation is in contrast to the attacks of previous generations. You see, our temptation can be to just talk about the attack in our generation. You know, maybe, maybe it was this idea of evolution and creation, and so that was a conflict over the last generations that many were fighting out and trying to figure out. And it can be a temptation to want to just say, that's the biggest thing you need to understand. But sometimes we might ignore some of the questions I just raised a few minutes ago that it got very quiet in here. Gender. LGBT conversation. Suicide. How do I find meaning and purpose? Why am I here? Justice? What is justice? Racism? All of these questions are key questions that our young people want to have a place to talk about. These are also places where if they don't know how to engage them, they're very susceptible to arguments that actually counter Christian truth. And so we've got to get acquainted with these things. I think one of the ways we can do that is providing frameworks. Um, one of the frameworks that I write about with David Kevin in a book called Good Faith is a framework where we kind of work through any current issue that you're trying to think through with your students. And we have this five-point framework. I'll just quickly give this. I don't have a slide for this. But I'll give you kind of these five points, and it's something I would invite you to go read this chapter in the book. It's called Five Ways to Be Faithful in the book Good Faith. And what we try to articulate is how do you think through any issue? And the first foundational idea is theology, okay? The first way to come and approach any current issue is say, what does God say about this? What is God's design for this? What does the Bible say about this? What have the church fathers taught about this? Okay, and once we get clear on this is God's view of this, God's design for this particular issue, then we can have confidence to start to move into these other frameworks. The next one is ministry, which, which is essentially what is my pastoral response to my friends, my neighbors, the people in my school who actually struggle because of the result of the fall. So in the sexuality category, which is where we go in this particular chapter, we try to define it because we said, look, if we can't talk about this in the sexuality conversation, we have no business trying to talk about it with any other issue because this is the most complex one. So if you believe, for example, God's design is sex is meant to be inside of a covenant marriage, anything else, otherwise, everybody should remain celibate or single, then the, then the very next question then is ministry. What do we do with people who really have same-sex attracted feelings that are very real? And maybe it's all they've ever experienced since they can remember. Do we invalidate those? No. We actually, in ministry, with compassion, have a pastoral response of love, of care, of concern, of seeking to understand. Certain churches could disagree on how they want to facilitate ministry within that uh, group of people who are thinking that way or wanting to work through that. And that's okay. We don't all have to be on the same page about how we do the ministry. But the point is, let's not confuse our theology and give that as, as some ability for us to just say, we don't have to do good ministry because I don't agree that this is God's perfect design. No, we all are fallen. We all experience the, the sin of this world and how it's disoriented us from the ways God has meant for us to be. And so because of that, pastorally, we want to love and care and have compassion and concern. But then moving beyond ministry, the third area is relationships. So how do we now think about our friends and our family members and the people that we love who disagree with us? 
How do we actually engage them? How do we not lose relationships over this? How do we have compassion that there's some other views on this and there's some people who may disagree with me? And that's okay. But I can still love them well. I can still treat people with dignity who, who I have a difference with on a particular theological point. Something we in the church need to get better at, right? We're seeing the division just continue to happen. Fourth, in this framework, is now politics, okay? This is where it gets really heated. So now, how do I think about this particular current issue in our current political environment? What policies should I support? And by the way, when you're thinking about the political lens, one of the things we just assume is that most policies, every policy, in fact, is pretty imperfect. So it's more, what imperfect policy best will lead to human flourishing? That's the question that the Christian's asking. Which imperfect policy that we're going to put into law or vote on or try to get passed, which one of those actually could lead to the most human flourishing? That's the question we ask for the political lens. And then the final framework is the public square, right? So this is like online world. This is in, in kind of the consumer America space. It's the questions in this particular issue. You know, a few years ago, should the baker bake the cake? Right? It's, it's all these questions of Christian conviction, living in a world that's pluralistic, that's not necessarily a Christian uh, society. And so how do we function as Christians in that? And you know what? Good Christians disagree on that. Plenty of good Christians believe the baker should just bake the cake and love their neighbor well. And there's other good Christians who go, no, that violates my freedom of conscience, so I won't do that. And of course, we've had court cases on that, and we've seen that start to play out in our legal system. But the point is, good Christians can disagree on that. But that framework and helping your students start to realize, I can take any issue. I can take marijuana, right? I can take racism. I can take uh, mental health and the suicide epidemic. And I can start to run all that through this understanding of what is God's design? How do I minister to people who are struggling with this? How do I have and, and guard my relationships with people and love and care for them well that might disagree with me on this? How do I think about policies that would help stop injustice and prevent evil? And then in the public square, how can I operate in such a way that honors Christ, but also honors my conviction and still have courage to speak to these things and to help people who might be struggling with some of these issues? You see, in our church, one of the things we created to try to help our youth think about these things is we created something called Q&A Nights. And what we've done is we've invited high school students and we've said, you know what? We want you to have space outside of your typical Sunday experience or your youth group experience. So on a Thursday night, we're all going to get together, anybody who wants to come, and we're going to have a panel. And so we'll have a panel of, of people that are college age, we'll have like an expert, maybe the pastor on the panel, I've been on a couple of them, and we'll invite all these high school students and we'll have a topic. So one night the topic was technology. How do we manage our technology and, and all that we're using it, our phones and all of that, right? So these students come in and we spend 90 minutes and they get to use, use their phones to actually ask us all these questions. And we tell them, look, no topics off limits. We want you to know that the church is a place you can come and you can ask these questions. In direct contrast to what Francis Schaeffer was suggesting. We've had a night on sexuality where all these students could invite their friends from other high schools and say, hey, our, our church is having a night talking about this. I mean, I've talked a little with my parents about it. I've talked to my friends about it. But man, the church is going to talk about this. I wonder what the church has to say. And with humility, we try to answer their questions. And if we get stumped or we say, we, we don't... That's a good question. We're going to have to think about that, and, and let's talk about it more. The students respect that. As you know, our students who are at these younger ages are more informed than ever. They have access to more information than ever. Many of them are using Google as their, their chief mentor, you know, to find out their questions. 
what's a good pickup line to ask a girl, right? Um, you know, how do I how do I approach you know anything? They're 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 asking Google. That's what's mentoring them. And so, how can we create spaces within our schools where students feel like this school, this Christian school, isn't just sheltering me? Because that's the critique we always get, right? Is this is you're so sheltered? And of course, as I grew up in that little bubble shelter, I am so thankful for that. Now that I'm 45 years old, I look back and go, thank God that my parents had me there. Sure, I could have gone to public schools and, and things in Virginia where I live. It probably would have felt a little bit like a Christian school. But I am so thankful I was memorizing scripture. I'm so thankful I was in a space that all the authorities that were around me agreed and aligned with my parents for the most part theologically. There was a consistency to that life. And so even though you'll get that critique that you're sheltering them, the way you can come back at that is create space to talk about these issues. Please do not avoid these topics. My students in their Christian schools sometimes come home and say, we don't talk about this issue or that. I don't know why we, we, we seem to avoid it, right? Of course, they've grown up as my children, so they're kind of used to us talking about these topics. We lived in New York City for, for four years uh, back when they were in elementary school, and so a lot of these topics were brought to our attention without me being intentional about it, but just by walking on the street, right? Just seeing the billboards, creating conversations with my kids so that they knew that, look, as a Christian, we can talk about these things. We don't have to avoid them. What I want to suggest to you is that one of the ways that you can do that is to build these conversations into your classroom setting wherever possible. We're working with a couple of schools now who are piloting this. They're using some of our QTalk technology, which allows you to take some of these subjects and talks. And instead of you being the expert on it, you can play a nine-minute talk, just like some of you probably play TED Talks and use content like that. You can play our talks that are going to give people a good, informed Christian worldview understanding of a particular issue. And then you get to lead a conversation. And you don't have to be the expert. We're finding that the intimidation factor with pastors and other Christian leaders who are in these roles sometimes don't address things because they feel like they have to know it all. Well, what we're finding is as we partner with people, they don't have to know it all. You can let us kind of do some of that heavy lifting, and then you can just lead conversations. We call it conversational learning. Where students are getting to engage, you're getting to hear their worldview, they're starting to think out loud, you're hearing how they're thinking about these issues, which is going to inform how you can start to move the ball forward as you try to reshape their imagination and how they're thinking. I want to play a quick video for you, and I want you to see kind of how we're starting to accomplish that, so you can play that now.
So this gives you a little picture of the event we do annually, and, and then what we do is we take this content and now we put it into an app that's on Apple TV, it's on your phone, it's on your laptop, where you can, you know, Roku, any smart TV, you can access this. And what I wanted to do is just give you the gift of a free trial of this so that you can check it out for your school um, and see what you think. But if you, if you write this down, you can get a 30-day free trial at qideas.org slash educator. So this is the place you can go. You can do that on your phone. And then you can log in, get an account, you'll get a free 30-day trial. What we do is we create playlists in there. We create playlists around these different topics. So we have an LGBT playlist, we have uh, a mental health playlist, we have a playlist on faith and work. A uh, playlist on anything that a student would be interested in thinking about. We have a playlist on race. And then we have a playlist called Classroom. And so you're going to see a playlist called Classroom. And we've designed that playlist specifically with talks that we believe high school students would be very interested in engaging. It's people like hip-hop artist Lecrae talking about racism. Somebody they want to hear talk about this. Or Trip Lee talking about this idea of being um, reverent over just trying to be cool and fit in. And so there's these conversations that you can start around it. So what I want you to do is check that out. And if you like what you're seeing, we can follow up and, and help find a way for your school and your, your entire faculty to have access to this. So we have churches starting to use this. We have schools using this. And so it's an exciting way to do the learning conversation thing. Now, as we continue forward, I think our final opportunity kind of aligns with what James was talking about. It's this idea of being human again. And I want to kind of move through this rather quickly, but this is our opportunity to create creators that aren't just consumers. You see, we have a unique opportunity to reteach what it means to be human. Now, in some ways, I know that sounds big. It sounds like audacious. But I think even for some of us, we would be refreshed by relearning what it means to be human in a world where things are becoming much closer to being uh, artificial intelligence, digital, tech. You've got Elon Musk now talking about planting chips in our brain. I don't know if you follow the news, but in the next year, where chips will actually now be inserted, they're testing that now to provide extra intelligence that will come under the guise of medical information that will help you and help you better understand how your body's working. But there's no end in where that could go. And so we're moving into a space now, and if you follow big tech and you just watch where the trend line is going, and if you, you stick to this line of a Huxley, right, or an Orwell, and you say, where are we gonna be in 100 years? And they were kind of predicting this even so back 100 years ago. We're gonna be more robotic, we're gonna be Kind of trained to just do things and our social behaviors are going to be driven a lot by information by news by what's coming through our phones i don't say this to scare you i simply say it to say this is where all of the trend lines lead and if we're not awake to it if we're not aware to it if we're not able to kind of wrestle with the fact that this is kind of truly what we're starting to see play out you look at the use of the cell phone just over the last decade you start to see in uh, you know the brain starts to get reformed, right? We've already seen that in our students. We get rewired. We're tethered more to them. I mean, 89% of us are checking our phone first thing in the morning. Did you do that 20 years ago? No. You probably read. You probably got up and walked around. Maybe you walked outside and breathed in some fresh air. And now today we find ourselves doing this. It's almost like an attachment to our hands. Okay, so much more so for our children who don't even know there was another world. You at least know there was a different way to exist. You, you, you are the last generation to know there's a different way to exist. So the opportunity is to carry that forward, to remind them what does it actually 
mean to be fully human. It's not that using our technology is bad. It's not that this isn't can't have good ends to it, right? We're using it today. We're, we flew on airplanes to get here. Obviously, technology can contribute to life, but only when it actually has a vision for human flourishing. Only when it's being used as subservient to human beings having a, a dominance over that towards our flourishing, not when it starts to distract, detract from who we are. You see, I think a lot of our students start to feel powerless. They feel like the world's doing something to them. They don't feel like they have agency. They're not sure that they have meaning or purpose anymore. With the suicide epidemic on the rise, not only in our youth, but in 35 to 55 year old men, you're starting to see what the CDC calls deaths of despair. Perhaps you've heard about this, where deaths are happening due to alcoholism and liver, liver disease. They're due to opioid addiction and also to suicide. We've seen our life expectancy drop for men from 75 years to 73 years. It's never happened before in, in our history since we tracked it. Okay, this is supposed to be in a flourishing world where our economy is supposed to just be booming and we have access to everything and we're consuming everything. But see, it's not truly the good life. There's more to it. Jordan Peterson, have you heard of Jordan Peterson? Okay. He wrote a book called Rules for Life. Not a, not a believer, but somebody who speaks to a lot of Christian worldview and the things that he teaches. Became a prolific overnight uh, professor online on YouTube teaching just basic truths about life, about why we exist, about how to find meaning and purpose, about how to get along. And then he writes this book called Rules for Life that becomes an instant bestseller. But when you look at the data, who's watching those? 18 to 25 year old young men are watching three hour lectures on YouTube. Not just the stereotypical, they're watching three minutes and moving on. No, watching three hour lectures because they're so desperate to know what it means to be human. They're longing for somebody to mentor, to teach them, to remind them. They know that there's more to life than they're being sold through their consumerist world. And they're saying, will you help me relearn what it means to be human? My wife and I over the last couple of years got to work on a project together. She wrote a book called Rhythms of Renewal. And it was a book uh, with the subtitle, Training Stress and Anxiety for a Life of Peace and Purpose. But what we were doing was essentially, she was writing down what our life has been like over the last several years as we moved from New York City back to Tennessee and started to kind of remake our life. You see, my children were in a public school in Tribeca, and I started to recognize that we were competing against something way more powerful than us as parents were, were capable of competing against. The worldview of their teachers, the worldview of their principals, administration, every night coming home with some new idea that we found ourselves having to refute to a second grader, fourth grader, seventh grader. As time went on, I started to remember that, man, I grew up so differently. And because I grew up differently, because my parents had put me into this different environment where I had this little bubble I could grow up in, I actually, Rebecca and I, and she had had the same history, we felt at home in New York City. We loved being in Manhattan. We loved engaging with our neighbors and having these difficult conversations, but being able to do it from a place of strength and conviction and confidence. But as we looked back, we said, that's because we actually had a rooting to us that I'm not sure our children are getting. And if we don't do something to help them get this, then, then they're gonna be tossed in the wind. And so my oldest son has special needs, so he was having a hard time in New York, and so there's a lot of factors playing into it, but in my heart of hearts, part of the conviction and reason I wanted to move was I wanted to set our family in a new place. I wanted to give them a place where our children could grow up around other authority figures in their life that we had alignment with. And so we could start to cultivate in their life a way of thinking and living. 
Um, but as she records in her book, there's these four rhythms that I want to leave you with today that I think are critical for each of us to remember what it looks like to be human. They're rather simple, simple to talk about, not always simple to live. But I think you'll find them uh, comforting even as you think about your own journey and how you're living in kind of a stressed out world, right? The first one is rest. There's four of them. So rest is all about this idea of we need to sleep well, right? We need to have quiet in our life. We need these rhythms that we're actually building into our daily life that allow us to feel again, allow us, obviously, if we get eight hours of sleep, we're healthier, our immunity's better, okay? We, we wake up and our brain's ready to fire better. There's all kinds of things that just come with basic idea of sleep. So how do you go to sleep? Well, you don't have your phone in your bedroom, right? You probably go to bed reading, not watching television. There's all kinds of just practical things. But we have to learn to rest again. We need to have quiet. We need to spend time with God. As Christians, we obviously abiding with Christ. Getting that time with Him is what's going to shape our imagination for the day. The second one is to restore. You see, rest and restore, these are kind of these input rhythms. This is what fuels you so you have something to offer to the world. Restore deals with like what we're eating, right? Are we working out? Are we breaking a sweat? Are we taking a walk? Do you realize some of the greatest ideas that will ever come to you come when you take a walk? Something happens in our brains, the way God's wired us, that when we're out in creation, when we're moving, our brains move as well in a beautiful way. So there's a lot of science in this book, and we kind of lay it out so that people have seven different options of rhythms to live out what it means to restore. What does it mean to cultivate that within yourself? The third one is to connect, and here's where we get into the outputs. So once you've rested well and you're restoring and you've got this as part of your rhythm, you're eating well, you're breaking a sweat, you're taking walks, you're kind of, you're waking up again, you're being human again, you're feeling again. You now have to emphasize connection with people, eye to eye, put the phone down, vulnerability, extending hospitality, eating meals together, really connecting with people. And we see in all the data how lonely this generation is. And yet, right, always wired up, but lonely. They don't know what it means to have somebody in their life truly connecting. They don't know who they can trust anymore. They're not sure they can trust their friends. They're scared their lives will be so public that they can't bear their soul to anybody. So who can they do that with? We have to create space so they can connect, but you have to do that first so that you're in a healthy place. And then finally, create. And that's what we're talking about today. Rest, restore, connect, create. Once you're doing these things, creating is just a natural part of being a human since the time, the beginning of this world with Adam. Is that God's given us this human job description, and part of that human job description is to create, to make things, right? <coughs> Rhythms like being responsible for something. Our little girl was dealing with some, some, um, you know, what I would say, anxiety at a young age, as we hear with so many children. And so what do we do? We worked with her and we bought some chickens at, at our and put them in our backyard and let her take care of the chickens. So we still have seven chickens, but she had to be responsible for the chickens, and she had to take care of them. And just giving a child responsibility allows them to realize, oh, I can do more, right? They start to build a resilience that a lot of our children don't have today because they're not being trusted to create. We protect them from those opportunities sometimes. And so there's a lot of rhythms we can live out, and we can talk on and on about that, but I'll just conclude with this. What's been amazing to me is to watch the culture start to swing in a direction to where they're asking better questions. I think our children are gonna ask better questions. I think as technology continues to move forward and we start to, to feel and see that this is changing our lives and I'm not sure it's for the better, we're gonna see better questions than maybe we've seen in decades. People are gonna be asking the question, how do I know what's true, okay? 
The Christian story has the best answer to that. They're going to ask, what is my purpose and how do, how do I know it? The Christian story can answer that for them. But it's also going to ask, they're going to ask, how can I be known? Who, who, who knows me? And we know our Heavenly Father is the one that truly knows them. But it's going to be in that embodied practice of your life, of your culture, of the places you're creating for these students to flourish, to ask these questions, to, to show them that our faith can step into any of these dialogues and we're not afraid of it. But to also let them know that our faith helps them remember who they are and who they've always been designed to be and what it truly means to be human. Because I believe their friends, as generations go forward, as the years go forward, a decade forward, if we just want to think a decade forward, their friends are going to be asking them, how do I become human again? How do I get back to some of these basics that I have never been taught? How do I do it? And it's an exciting opportunity for the Christian to say, I can help you have the answer to the questions that you're longing for in your heart. Thank you for letting me share with you this morning. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.